We're in Mark 8, if you want to turn your Bible there. We're starting verse 31 today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask for your presence, your glory to rest upon this place. The psalmist said that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he brings them deliverance, Lord. We fear your name. The psalmist will say the steadfast love of the Lord rests on those who fear the Lord. We fear you, Lord. Would your steadfast love rest upon this place today? Shape us, mold us. May Jesus be glorified in us and through us. Somebody say amen. Amen. Matthew 4, I want to read to you from Matthew 4, verse 8 through 10 as we get going. Again, the devil took him, being Jesus, to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you, if you will, fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Remember that this is the introduction to Jesus's ministry. We have 40 days of fasting and a wilderness temptation. We've said many times before that this is the kind of flip of the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve in perfect paradise fall to the temptation of the serpent, but Jesus in the wilderness, tired and hungry, resists Satan and conquers. The temptation here in the, wilderness, uh, in the wilderness for Jesus is Satan saying, I'll give you all of the earth, I'll surrender it to you if you fall down and worship. In other words, you don't have to go to the cross, you don't have to suffer, you don't have to endure the pain and the agony that God the Father has planned for you. Just worship me and you can have it all. Luke, in his gospel, in chapter 4, he told us this. Luke 4.13 And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. In other words, Satan would return again in the life of Jesus with the same um, motivation and the same strategy to try to tempt Jesus out of the cross, out of suffering. R.C. Sproul, one of the greatest teachers of the last generation, said that the opportune time, he believed that the opportune time that Luke spoke of, the moment when Satan would return to Jesus in hopes of tempting him out of his mission was found in our text today in Mark chapter 8. And Sproul suggests that the temptation of Satan actually will flow through the lips of the apostle Peter. And you remember Peter's going to say to Jesus, he's going to pull Jesus aside and rebuke Jesus and say, you cannot suffer, you can't die, you can't go to the cross. And Jesus looks at Peter, looks at the disciples, and we'll read in our text today, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And it's fascinating, it's a wonderful fascinating text for us to ponder. Because we have Peter, just the passage before saying, you are the Christ. So this high in Peter's life, and this this moment of great success, just a fickle few breaths later, Jesus says to Peter, you are in alignment with the ministry and the message and the temptation of Satan, get behind me. And man, it just displays for us how fickle we are as believers. Like in one moment, we can have great highs in the next moment we can be totally in our flesh and in opposition with the plans and purposes of God. 
We need to have the humility to be aware of that. Let me read you our text and we'll, we'll get rolling. Mark 8, again, this is verse 31 through 33. Be encouraged, we're tackling the whole three verses of scripture today. The he here is Jesus again. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this, catch that language. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me set the stage for you one more time. The disciples are at Caesarea Philippi. They're kind of on a retreat with Jesus. They're, they're in a Gentile territory. We, we said that Caesarea Philippi, the location where they are, one of the only places, not one of the only, but one of the few places that archaeologists are pretty certain about, I'm at Caesarea Philippi. In this age, there was a, a god named Pan worshipped there. Um, there was there was human sacrifice given to Pan. But we know historically that um, Baal was worshipped in the same position. This there it's kind of a I don't know how to describe kind of a cliff with these caves inside of it where they would throw people for human sacrifice. There's mythology that Pan was born in one of these caves, um, and so it's this great location of paganism. This great location of people dying to worship these pagan deities. And it's in the face of this paganism that Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think that I am? First, he says, who do people say that I am? And remember, again, their responses were very safe. People say that you're Elijah. Elijah was swept away in chariots of fire. First century Judaism, again, is fascinated with this idea of Elijah not dying. Malachi said he would return. They say, people say you could be Elijah. Others say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. There's not very much logic to that because, well, Jesus and John the Baptist are about the same age. Jesus turns to the question and looks at the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Now, that pointed question we said last week is a, a question that every person in humanity will have to face sooner or later. Who do you say that I am? Up to this point in the ministry of Jesus, they've seen Jesus walk on water, heal the sick, raise the dead, calm storms, cast demons out of individuals who are totally demonized and crazed, living in tombs. They've seen Jesus do things that that people are not supposed to do. And so they begin to ponder and wonder, who is he? There are moments in the text we've tried to highlight. uh, Mark 4, for instance, where Jesus calms the storm and the disciples, the scripture says the disciples were afraid of him. Like, you catch kind of the nuance. What is what is this man? Who is he? So for the first time in the ministry of Jesus, Peter gets the nerve to vocalize what everyone's been wondering about. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the nerve to say, you are the Christ. Now we said last week that that's a big statement for a young man who's grown up in Judaism because the Christ is the fulfillment of, of all Old Testament prophecy that The heavens and the earth will be realigned that, politically speaking, Israel will be delivered and be victorious in the light of the nations. And so 
to say you are the Christ is to say all of my hopes and dreams and ambitions are bound up in you. I think you fulfill all that God has promised. That was a big, a big, a big step of faith that Peter made. Now, I want to show you a nuance that we miss if we read too quickly. We said at the beginning of our series that church history teaches us really plainly, and I believe this to be true, that the gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. Okay, John Mark was the relative of Barnabas that Paul and Barnabas brought with them on their first missionary journey. What church history teaches us is that John Mark worked as a scribe for the apostle Peter. So if John Mark is working as a scribe for the apostle Peter, what we're reading in Mark's gospel is the gospel of Peter. It's Peter's dictation. Now, that's fascinating because the synoptics or Matthew and Luke, do you guys remember synoptic, syn, like synthesis means same, and optic is like view, eyesight. Synoptic means the same view or the same perspective. The gospel of John gives a whole different perspective. But the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all give this story, but Mark, or Peter's gospel, is the only one that leaves out Jesus' response after Peter says, you are the Christ. Remember, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, Peter, the profession you just made was revealed to you by the very spirit of God. And there's a, there's a, a prophetic revelation that you came to in the spirit, Peter. Luke tells us, remember, um, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, um, on this rock, I will build my church. So Peter gives us this thing of like, Peter, your confession, your tenacity, your faith in who I am, on that, I'll build my church. So we have two separate yet great validations or um, great honors given to Peter. And it's fascinating because Peter doesn't record them. Peter's slides over that part. But there's some humility found in the heart of Peter in the heart of the text and that Peter does not slide over the part where Jesus calls him Satan. I I don't know how we can really chew on and meditate on and, and glean from this narrative in the sense that Peter on one hand, just a few moments before, is called prophetic, if you will. He's receiving revelation from the Spirit. And Jesus says to Peter, you, uh, your confession and your faith, I'm building my entire church on that. And, and then in the next moment, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 98% of us would have walked away. We, are, we get our feelings hurt so easily. And we bow out so easily. And, and, and we find something in Peter, a tenacity, a of kind of voracious, like, I'm going to keep going after you, even though you just rebuked me. There's a pain there, a cutting there. And there are many times, I'm just talking from my heart now, um, there are many times personally where I felt a sharp rebuke from the Lord. There are times where I've been embarrassed of my mouth. I've been embarrassed of my actions. Um, I've felt the conviction of the Spirit call me. And what you do with that matters. Are you guys following what I'm trying to say? Um, it's his prerogative. It's his right 
as the Lord. When, when Peter said, you're Messiah, Peter said, you are the king, you're the Lord. It is his prerogative and his right to correct us. Nothing in the text of scripture says you have to enjoy it as far as I'm concerned. But you do have to lay down and take it. And I think one of the things we see in the life of Peter is that Peter clearly laid down and, t- and took it. He didn't quit. This isn't like Peter telling a woe is me story. He's, he's clearly learned some humility here. Our text today says that after the disciples came uh, to this revelation of who Jesus was, Jesus began to correct their re- revelation about what the Messiah would accomplish. So they've finally come to the kind of joint conclusion that Jesus is Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, man, you got it. I am the Messiah. Now the rest of the gospel turns to try to explain to them that they don't understand what the Messiah came for, comes for, will accomplish. They say, you're the fulfillment of all God's promises. And Jesus says, yes, but you don't get them. You don't understand the role of Messiah. And what we have here is the first of three passion predictions, is what we call them. The first time that Jesus says, no, I, I am Messiah, you're right, but what you're wrong about is I am actually going to suffer and die. And I wanted you to, to catch the nuance in the text because um, Mark wants us to know that Jesus said it plainly. Because so many times in the gospel so far, Jesus has been teaching them through what? Through parables. Through these pictures and images. But now Jesus says to them, looks to them in the eye and says, I will suffer the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They can't agree on what color the sky is. But they will come together and crucify me, will kill me. That was a revelation in itself. Religious people agreeing on something? Good God. I will rise. They're going, what? Now, he's, he's saying to the disciples, you're, you're getting there. You've come to the revelation of who I am, but you don't understand what I'm going to do. And so he starts his proclamation by saying, the son of man. And and that in itself, that phrase in itself is a throwback to Daniel chapter 7 that we've looked at so many times. Let me read it to you just one more time. Daniel said this in Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like what? Like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days or the father. And he was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. And so, Jesus, it's like Jesus is saying, you got that part right. I am the son of man who will ascend to the father, receive dominion and glory and everlasting authority. But the son of a man will suffer. He's openly acknowledging the prophetic utterance that there is a final day in which he will cause all things to come into submission to himself. But he's trying to push them towards the idea. He's going to quote um, constantly the, the, the psalm that says, um, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is he saying? He's saying, there's a rejection. He's, it's actually a little bit interesting. Are you guys with me? I feel like I'm about to nerd out and you guys are going to go blank. Let me just say this. 
um, in Jewish history, obviously, largely at this point in time, people were looking for a political conqueror. No doubt about that. But there was a clear narrative in the text of the Old Testament. There was a clear suffering servant narrative that they didn't know what to do with. And so there were actually points in Jewish history where they were looking for two separate messiahs. Where some were saying, no, like, he is victorious, and he is the everlasting, and he gets dominion. And others were saying, but what do we do with these texts where, where, for instance, in Zechariah chapter 12, it says, we'll look on him who was pierced. And what do we do with, obviously, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? So there are certain rabbis who are going, there must be two. And so there, there were these two flows through the Old Testament narrative. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, I'm trying to show you that these two prophetic expressions, they all find fulfillment in me. And so he's going to keep quoting Psalm 118, the stone, the builders rejected. They have to reject me. They will reject me. Obviously, Isaiah 53, 3-5, that he would be despised and what? Rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and they esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. The same phrase from Zechariah 12. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his, uh, with his wounds we are healed, or by his wounds we are healed. So Jesus is explaining to the disciples, there is a rejection prophecy that you missed. There is a suffering that you've, you slid by. And I am the son of man who will ascend to the right hand of God. And the early church always understood that, that prophecy that the son of man would ascend to the right hand of God. They always understood that to be the ascension after the resurrection. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So at the ascension, there is, a, there is one coming on the clouds who the Father looks at, the Ancient of Days looks at, and says, you get all nations, all tongues, all authority, all dominion forever. And the church said, oh, yes, that happened at the ascension. But Jesus, is, again, is saying to the disciples, you, you don't quite get it. You get that I am he, but you don't get what I'm doing. And Peter, who is just told, again, Peter doesn't tell this in Mark, but Matthew and Luke both tell us. Peter, who was just told, you receive revelation from the Spirit. And, and when you and I get something right, we tend to think automatically we're a prophet. Right? Like, I think, I, some of you guys are like, I knew that was going to be a baby girl. I sensed it in the Spirit. Flip a coin, baby. You got a like 50% chance. I see some people nudging people. Um, uh, I, I think that, I think that we see when even Jesus saying on this rock, I'll build my church. I think Peter had a, and in his spiritual high, had a little boost of confidence. Oh, I don't have the time to express this, what I want to express fully. But, but I'll say this. Um, don't read into what I'm about to say too much. Um, but the, during the fast, after the fast, the prayer gathering, it was like, man, we had the, great, the, the, the best worship and prayer. Like there was, a, there was a, a mountaintop that I think we came to, um, and I felt as fulfilled 
or exhilarated in the spirit as I've felt in years. Man, three days later, I'm going, I am, I'm frustrated. I'm worked up. I, I text one of the elders and said, my attitude is just garbage. Like, I need you to pray for me because I have the worst attitude. And, and again, we can come to these moments where we, where we experience God. But what we do with the moment must be cloaked in humility or God will humble us. And so Paul, for instance, has these heavenly visions. And what happens? Paul says, God gave me a thorn in the flesh so that I wouldn't be puffed up. And I asked him to take it away and God said, no. And that wrecks your theology, I know, but Paul said it's true. That when God, when we meet God, when we have revelations in God's spirit, that we need to immediately come back to humility. Because if we begin to think too highly of ourselves, God in his graciousness will remind you how low you are. So Peter, feeling confident, pulls Jesus aside. Have you ever pulled Jesus aside? I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) To talk about your perspective of how things should go. He pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus. Jesus listens and watches the disciples. Um, and, and we're not told fully what the rebuke is, but it's, I mean, we could put the pieces together. Um, you're not going to suffer. We're not going to let you bleed. This is, this is not the plan. You're going to conquer with military power. Give me a sword. I can swing it. And he's rebuking Jesus. You cannot die. Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. And again, think of Sproul saying, this was the opportune moment where the disciples are excited about the messianic prophecy being fulfilled in Christ. All of Jesus' closest companions are going, good God, we're about to have victory. There's, There's peer pressure and excitement. And Jesus looks at Peter in the face and says, you are actually promoting the agenda of hell right now by trying to get me to avoid the cross. Get behind me. In front of the disciples, I I say all the time, like, we believe in the Matthew 18 principle. Like, you pull people aside when you can. and You you try to work things out with a brother one-on-one. But there are just times in Scripture where God will expose you in front of people. I'm not happy about it. (laughs) From the spiritual high of you are correct. Spirit revealed this to you. The church will be built upon your confession to get behind me, Satan. The response from Jesus, again, is prophetically sharp. It exposes the motive. It exposes the perspective. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not set on the things of God. Peter wants Jesus to conquer, to rule and reign. God wants Jesus to go to the cross and bleed. Peter wants his idea of the Messiah to be established, not God's idea of the Messiah to be established. And, and we just do this. We, 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 we practice this Peter posture where what we want is our perspective of how Christianity should flow. And what we need is God's perspective as to what he wants to do in the church in this hour. And so, I don't, I don't mean to get too off the text here, but, but let me just talk for a second. We have constructed an idea of Christianity void of the cross. 
We've constructed an idea of Christianity that says, this gospel is about your personal comfort and your personal affluence and peace. We have not constructed an idea of the gospel that Peter missed. We haven't learned to ask the question, how will you receive most glory through this? God is concerned with his own glory and his son being exalted above the nations. And so the proper, the proper question to ask when Jesus says, I will be rejected, I will suffer, I will die, I will rise. The right question would have been, how is it that God will be most glorified in that suffering? Not, I will not go along with a plan that involves blood. When we meditate on the cross, it's really clear that God God bought us. He purchased us with the blood of the Lamb. But the, bl- the blood and the sacrifice was the greatest revelation of the heart of God. It was the greatest expression. It's divine imagery. It's like God would say, if I could paint a picture of how I feel towards you, this would be it. So heartbroken that you are separated from me because of sin, yet so merciful and enamored with you that I will pay the price of your punishment. I think of you with sacrificial, bloody, messy zeal. But Peter wanted Jesus just to come with a sword and conquer some people. But that is not the scenario in which God gets the most glory. Do you guys following what I'm saying? Had Jesus just torn down a few things and kicked a few things over. Yes, he would have been exalted. Yes, there would be some sense in which he would be the king. But when Jesus purchased us with blood, there is a worship from the church that is expressed that's filled with thankfulness and filled with praise and filled with, with pleasure. And, and in Revelation 4 and 5, again, when Jesus is presented in the prophetic revelation of the Apostle John, Jesus comes on the scene as a lamb who was slain, bloody and messy. And God says, this vision of Jesus, bloody, messy, slaughtered, sacrificed, that vision will cause the nations to glorify me more. It's okay to ask God, Peter, to ask Jesus. I don't get it. Show me how this will bring you glory. That's, a, that's the right question. But again, a, a, a crossless gospel is a powerless gospel. And, and, and to, to pull this principle down on top of our lives, we so many times want to present a Christianity, again, that is about us being fulfilled in this life. And Christianity, the, 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 the catechism, the Westminster Catechism, asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And we would say today, the American dream. I don't know, the chief end of man is to have a business and leave big investments to your children. You've been indoctrinated with this idea. Nothing wrong with having a business. The scriptures teach that a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Nothing wrong with leaving an inheritance to your children. You should work towards that. But that is not your chief end. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So you hit a little spot of suffering. You hit a little spot of sorrow. You hit a little spot of correction. And you start saying to to God's will, get behind me, Satan. 
rather than causing in your heart to rise up, God, I am not comfortable with this suffering. I am not happy. If this is an attack of the enemy, help me to pray and to press. But even in demonic assaults, there's no demonic assault that touches my life that God doesn't see, know, and he doesn't have the ability to stop at any moment. In other words, old theologians used to say, there's nothing that touches my life that doesn't pass through God's fingers. I know that messes with some of our theology, but it's true. There's no demonic attack that God can't thwart right when he's ready to. And so in some sense, Job, in some sense, Paul, Paul calls his thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan. In some sense, God allows suffering and hardship to touch my life, but the suffering, the promises that the suffering, the hardship, even in the moments when Satan's beating on my door, God will flip, reverse, use to most glorify his son. And so if I could just read you like a plethora of scriptures just to show you really quick that your life, that chief end of your life is not about your happiness, is not about your pleasure, and it's not about your comfort. The chief end of your life is about God receiving the most glory through your sweat, through your sorrow, through your highs, and through your lows. God intends to have glory through you. And at times it will involve hardship. Let me just read to you a few scriptures. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the what? With the glory that will be revealed to us. These sufferings are not worth comparing. The promise of the scripture to you is not anytime you suffer, yell at God and shout. Anytime you suffer, it must be a demonic assignment. The scripture says you will suffer. But when you suffer, there's a glory being worked out. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to what? He's called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered a little while. Romans 5, 3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Scripturally speaking, we rejoice in sufferings. We serve the man of sorrow. Knowing that suffering does what? Produces things in us. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. I don't know, maybe like quit throwing a fit on the internet because someone looked at you wrong. Maybe that's a part of your Christian purpose and call. Philippians 3.10 That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings. Paul says, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ because in suffering, God receives the most glory through me. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called. You have been called. There's a call on your life to this. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. You're called to serve Christ who suffered for you so that you might follow in his footsteps. And I could just keep going for like 30 more minutes if you want me to, to show you that in, in some sense, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I am the Christ, but you don't get what the Christ is going to accomplish. And in some sense, I think the same thing follows through to the church. Like we are the church, but we've redefined what the church is called to. The church is called to live with a single aim, glorify God in the earth, Blood, sweat, tears, suffering, sorrow, agony, persecution, correction, rebukes, whatever is necessary to glorify your son, God, do it in us and through us. 
We'll go anywhere. We'll say anything. We'll, we'll sweat. We'll bleed. The question the disciples should ask Jesus is, how is this producing the most glory? And the, the question we need to ask is not, how do we a- attain to the most peace? How do we attain to the most comfort? Our constant conversation with God cannot be, I am frustrated with you because my finances are right, aren't right, or I'm frustrated with you because my dreams haven't come true. Your dream should be this. God be glorified. And, and again, the, the Western idea of church is that your dream should be to whatever. Be on America's Got Talent. Bad news, you can't sing. <laughs> Jesus is trying to teach the disciples what the Messiah is. Who he is, yes, we've got that part. What the Messiah does. And we need to allow Jesus to teach us about Messiah. We need the Spirit of God to teach us about Jesus. Then to teach us what we are called to again. Because we've got a false definition of, of who we are. We've got parts and pieces. Right? Like, we're seated in heavenly places. we got that memorized. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Cha-ching, that fits my narrative. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Yes. Prosper you. We've got, we've got part of the narrative, but we've, avoid, we've avoided the part of the, the scriptural narrative that calls us to the cross. We need to let Jesus teach us what Christianity is again. If we could just try to end on a positive note, because that's who we are. We're very optimistic people. <laughs> he says to Jesus, he says to Peter, your mind is not set on the things of God. And so for us, again, we need to redefine, we need to think about what does it mean to have a mind that is set on the things of God? Again, the, the catechism, the, the, the church said that to have your mind set on the things of God is to have your mind set on God receiving glory in the earth and enjoying God. Enjoy, like our aim is to enjoy Him. Psalm 27, 8 says, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face do I seek. What, it, what does it mean, Peter? You don't have your mind set on the things of God. You're not thinking about my nature, thinking about my character. You've not meditated deeply upon who I am and what I'm accomplishing. You're, I am not the center of your thought life right now. When we, when we allow God's nature and His character and His attributes to become the center of our thought life, when we find ourselves thinking on God, His purposes, and His plans, our values shift and our direction changes. And the, the chief end of your life, again, moves from getting as comfortable as I possibly can to, hey, God, if it would bring you glory, I would gladly go to the prayer meeting this morning. Do you know that my flesh never wants to go to the prayer meeting? I never think to myself at night when I lay down, you know what I'll do is I'll wake up a little bit earlier and I'll pray a little bit longer because that would be so nice. You know what I think? Like, can I snooze a little longer? But when my mind is, is, is focused on the things of God, I think, man, what could we accomplish in an hour of prayer? And I think, man, I might have a moment with God where all of my desires are satisfied. And we start thinking about the Great Commission. Now, go into all the earth, baptize, make disciples of the nations. Like, you get that there's work to that, right? 
do you get that we don't go into the nation baptizing them in Jesus' name and make disciples through building ourselves bigger houses? You, like, we're not that slow, right? Like, there's work. There's sweat. There's energy. I don't know if you've, like, ever taught a small group or taught a Bible class or worked with teenagers. (laughs) Not fun, dude. Not always fun. I enjoy a, a, a good middle schooler. I think their humor is funny. I get to high school and I'm not loving it so much. But what we have again in the West is our goals are not God's goals. And when you think about how am I going to invest my life? How am I going to invest my finances? How am I going to invest my energy? God has told us where to invest our finances and our energy. Where do we invest our time? It's in discipleship. In the house of God. In prayer. In worship. But we've got Netflix, God. And they didn't have Netflix in the first century. We set our mind on the things of God when we diligently wait for the return of Jesus. When we learn to watch and wait again. Just, just to diligently seek God Right, We want to be the, the laborers in the vineyard who are working when the master returns. What I'm trying to say is when we begin to set our mind on the things of God and we resolve in our hearts that our aim is for God to receive the most glory, there is, there is no yes that's too big. What, what happens though is we, we say we're Christians, and a lot of times because we grew up in the, the West, our, our grandma went to this church, so we go to this church. We're Christians. We, we like Peter. We say, you're the Messiah. You're the King. You're the Lord. But the moment we start talking about like, hey, we're doing small group sign-ups, and the scriptures actually call you to meet with the saints, to pray with the saints. Like, there's some, there's some work in this. Everyone kind of goes, eh. I'm mean. I feel mean all the time. American Christianity is, let's do the least we can do. Let's do bare minimum. and Ride the red carpet straight to heaven. That is, that is not saying, God, glorify your son in me. And Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to bleed. Because in the suffering and in the bleeding, I will be most glorified. When we get to the place where there's no, there's no yes too big, God, there's no ass too big. I squirm. Like there's, there's, I don't think there's condemnation for squirm. You guys know what I mean by squirming? When God says, you're going to do this. And like, uh. <laughs> but at some point in the squirming, you lay down and allow the knife of the spirit to pin you. So let's stand. Altar team, if you want to get in place. I think, I think it's worth meditating upon today. Pastor Brad, come for me because I need to go. I think it's worth meditating upon today. Are my values bathed in the pursuit of God's glory? Or are my values bathed in a pursuit of personal ease and comfort? Is, is, is the way that I'm spending my life 
about Jesus' name being exalted in the heavens and on the earth? Or is the way that I'm spending my life about me having nice Sunday evenings? Right? Like having comfort. The church's primary confession is Jesus is the most beautiful. Right? Like fairer than the sons of man. More glorious than we've ever imagined. The, the proper response to the glory and beauty of Jesus is to open your hands and say, I'm ready to serve you. Through hell or high water, suffering ain't that big of a deal. There's glory to be revealed.